So today as we walk with Jesus, we are really going to be focusing on walking the talk at home and at work. So in a day where the, the concept of family is constantly being redefined, Colossians chapter 3 takes Christ followers back to our roots and shows them what it looks like to be followers of Christ under one roof. Now the theology that we heard in the first three chapters now walks into our homes and arranges things in surprising ways because in the Christian household we have different roles but the same Lord. So we start off with that excruciatingly uncomfortable verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now I want to applaud all of you because I didn't see any husbands go like this. So if you did it, you did it quietly. But I think it's important to unpack this understanding of what this actually means and what this looks like and when it's supposed to be followed and when there's opportunities for this to be misused. Right? So right out of the box, this sounds like an offensive verse to our modern sensibilities. We hear the word submit, and maybe we think of this, this heavy-handed dictatorship kind of relationship between husband and wife. Submission in and of itself is a vile word to fallen humanity because we have a natural desire to rebel. And here in the United States, that rebellion is almost ingrained into our DNA and our strong sense of independence, of liberty. And submission sounds like retreat. It sounds like failure. We put it in the same category, like surrender and defeat. And we can look back at the very, very first marriage in the history of humankind and see that this is something that was broken. Because of the fall in Adam and Eve, the Lord says this to them. In Genesis 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, he tells Eve, but he shall rule over you. Now, this word submission, it, it means more along the lines of a, a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the mission of the husband. So if we go to the Latin for submit, uh, that's where we really get our English word submit is submissio. So the sub, of course, sounds like under, and missio means mission. So it means that the wife is to come under the mission of the husband, lift up, encourage, and bolster, and support and encourage the mission of the husband. So it's not a lord and peon relationship. It's a mutually beneficial lifting up of the mission of the family. Now to many people, simply submitting to God sounds like a foolish thing much less another human being. But yet, God teaches us that whenever we submit to one another, we are actually submitting to him and claiming his lordship in our lives. Now, there's difficult times for this submitting to happen, primarily in situations of abuse, that a wife is not supposed to submit to an abusive husband. A wife is also not to submit to a husband who is asking the wife to do things that are contrary to God's word. These are, these are circumstances where this submission no longer needs to be followed because God would never want you to linger and suffer in that persecution. But when the husband 
is doing what the husband is supposed to be doing in a healthy relationship, then the wife is to come under the mission of that and support and encourage. But husbands actually have the harder job. Paul says this, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, Pastor Tig, I'm not harsh with my wife. Well, good. But I fear that sometimes because of our fallen humanity, sometimes we are harsh with our spouses. I wonder why it is that we, we give the best of ourselves to people at work and then come home and give the worst of ourselves to those we actually love more. The words that come out of our mouths are incredibly powerful. Words are incredibly powerful. They can either hurt or they can heal. And it says, do not, be, do not be harsh with them. That word harsh is more of this understanding of bitterness. And, and sometimes we let the little things in life kind of start to slowly build up. And, and slow resentment starts to build. And bitterness then is the result of that. And that bitterness comes out in, in our angry words or our the difficult things we say to one another, the things maybe that you say under your breath that eventually come out loud. You know, why is it that the enemy loves to get in to this, this uh, incredible union that God has brought together and the enemy loves to divide and draw lines with bitterness? And the marital relationships that we see online and on TV, it does us absolutely no good. Right, because we see the, the sitcom, classic sitcom family, uh, where the, the home is, is, is led by a, a, a foolish, childish type husband and a wife who is domineering and, and, and is bitter and looks down on her husband. And then you throw in kids into the mix, which just reflect all those same characteristics and, and, and enhance them. That's the TV version of what it looks like to be in a healthy relationship. But husbands, as I said before, husbands have a, a more difficult task because it says, husbands, love your wives. And maybe you say, but I, I do love my wife, and that's easy to love my wife because my wife is like the best wife in the whole world. I love her to pieces. But we have to take a look at what type of love this is talking about. And the, the, the Greek word for love in this circumstance, because there's lots of different words in Greek for love, but the Greek word for love, the very specific type of love that is here is agape. It's the love that God has for us. And specifically what that means is it's the sacrificial love that God has for us. That he's willing to lay his life down for us. So husbands, we are called to have sacrificial type love for our wives. To be willing to lay ourselves down, to lay our pride down, to lay our, our lives down. For our wives to be willing to sacrifice what we want and what we desire and so when you have this sacrificial type love and you're making a big decision for the family husbands we're just we're supposed to partner with our wives and receive from them all kinds of healthy input that would be helpful in making this decision and then make a decision that's best for the family as a whole not a decision that's best for me but a decision that's best for the family I'm giving an example of how not to do that. So this was, this was back, 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 back 20 years ago. And we were in a, in a community in North Idaho where classic cars were, that, that was just like all the rage. 
everybody had a classic car, but you had to only drive the classic car in the summer times because we didn't use salt, we used, we used gravel. I mean, it wasn't even sand, it was gravel, great big chunks, and you, you just pepper your car with it. So you kept the nice car for summertime only, and I wanted a nice car. I couldn't afford for summertime only, but I wanted a nice car, and I went to this classic car dealership in there, and the same, it was made the same week I was born. It was a Porsche 911S. This was gorgeous. From 1975, it was, it was within my budget. In fact, it, it, was, it was within anybody's budget, really. It was really, really low price for this vehicle, and I was so excited. And I, and I went to talk to, to my wife about this, and, and Sarah repeatedly said, I don't think that's a good financial decision. Which I just heard, I think that's a good financial decision. <laughs> and I thought about it, I gave it time, and I received more input from her and, and, and made a decision for the family that was best for me. I ended up buying this car, and it was a fun car to drive um, until it needed repairs. And repairs on this vehicle were severe and put us into more and more financial troubles. Husbands, let's not make decisions for us. Let's make decisions for what's best for our families. And, and wives, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking of plenty of times where your husband put himself first. And husbands, I'm sure you're thinking plenty of times where your, where your wife just failed to appreciate and lift up and encourage. But it kind of goes hand in hand. Right? If you're a husband who desires the best possible things for his family, not for himself, but for his family, well, that's a man that a woman can get behind and support and submit and lift up the mission of the husbands. Now, I know all of us have room to grow in this. There's not a single person who has got like the perfect Mr. Right or the perfect bride. So we all need to grow in this. Paul is saying this is where the rubber meets the road, folks. When you're dressed with the virtues of Christ, with the identity of Christ, you will be a husband worth submitting to. And wives, lift up and encourage that man. All right, now we get to move to the kids. All right, so if you are 18 years and younger, I'm talking to you right now. Like, obviously, there's a bunch of them right there. It's perfect. Children, obey your parents. Right? This is not submit to your parents. Submission is something that you willingly make a decision to do. Obey means you do it. <laughs> There's no choice in obeying your parents. You don't have the opportunity to say, should I or shouldn't I? I mean, I did four out of the last seven days, so, so maybe I can, I can like slack off a little bit. No, it says obey your parents. Do what it says. This is a fourth commandment kind of thing. And this willingness, this obedience to, to do these things for your moms and your dads is not because your moms and your dads need good slaves to work in their homes. It's because they are looking out for the best interests of you. Right? A lot of times when, when we pray to God as his children, we think we know the right thing for us, what would be good and pleasing for us. And so we pray those prayers to God. And sometimes he says, you know what? You're asking for the exact right thing at the precise right time. I'm so happy to give that to you. But sometimes we ask God for amazing things that we think would be right and things that we would like to do. And our Heavenly Father knows that what we're asking for is not what would be best for us. And so he says, no. And so sometimes when your moms and dads say no, it's not because they don't like you or they want you to be miserable. It's because they know that that's not the best 
case situation for you. And their job as moms and dads, their number one job as moms and dads is to raise you in the faith, to teach you the love of God, to raise you in that faith, and then not just speak those words, but to model it for you. And, and moms and dads aren't perfect. Moms and dads make a lot of mistakes. As a dad, I can tell you, I make lots of mistakes, but not on purpose. Even the mistakes I make, we need to follow up with love and grace and forgiveness. Moms and dads need forgiveness just as much as, as sons and daughters do. And then fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now in the Greek when it says fathers, it can mean both moms and dads. That same word is, is, is used for both. So when we, when we say fathers, it's really saying moms and dads, do not provoke your children because they can get discouraged. Things that provoke a child to becoming discouraged as being harsh or unfair or making perfection the standard that your children need to achieve. Not sharing and encouraging affirming words. Well, I can't repeat that enough times. Moms and dads, share encouraging and affirming words with your kids. The critiques that we make, they build up like heavy stones. And if you outweigh them with the good things that we say, I don't think it's possible for us to say good things enough. To encourage our young people is incredibly important, that they would see themselves who they are as incredible miracles of God, sons and daughters of God, that we have been given on loan to raise up in the faith. And that made me kind of think about it a little bit and, and just ask some, some of my friends, have you ever been discouraged by a parent? Like your moms and dads, did they ever discourage you? Uh, one gentleman uh, said that, that he was discouraged when, when his father left the family or had a, a report card that was never quite good enough or, or batted 750. They, they hit three out of four times at the plate, but it was that fourth one that dad talked about. Another gentleman said, I can't think of a time where I was ever discouraged, but I can't remember any time that I was encouraged. So moms and dads, here's your homework assignment for today. Uh, sons and daughters, pay close attention to what I'm about to say because you are the grade cards this time. Moms and dads, I want you to find five specific things that you can tell about each one of your children that's encouraging and affirming. Don't just say, you look nice today. Make it specific. Find them and catch them doing something right today and give them encouragement for it. So that's your job. You guys are the great cards. And then have you ever discouraged your son or your daughter? I asked that question to some friends, and they said, you know, I, I have, unintentionally so, but I have. And, those, and, and, our, and our young people, they hear the discouraging so much louder than they hear the encouraging. And we have to find that balancing line between are we being too soft with our children, too coddling, and somewhere between coddling and abuse is where we want to find ourselves. Right? We don't want to do anything that's going to damage our children, but we also don't want to give in to their every whim so that they, they lack for nothing and don't learn how to grow 
as a young man and young woman of God. All right, so now we branch out from the home that covers husbands and wives and parents and, and, and children. Now let's go into our places of work. So in our text today, it uses that word bond servant. And, and think, don't think of it like, like we have this picture of slavery in the early years of our country. It's not that type of slavery. It's a, it's a willingness. It's a, I, I want something from you or I owe you something and so I will work for you to pay that debt off. That's what a bond servant is, a person who is serving out a bond. And so it's, it's, it's a lot like how we work for debt today, right? We work hard to pay our debt off. We don't necessarily work for the bank, but we work for other agencies and organizations in order to, to create a paycheck so that we can pay that debt off. So we are all, in that sense, bond servants. So how do we go about our work? Bond servants obey everything in those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, Paul addresses how we are to live our Jesus adventure outside of the walls of our home in our everyday daily lives at work. And note the heart language. Because Paul is less concerned with what actually happens than he is with the motivation for what happens at work. He uses those words, I service and people pleasers. I, I have to confess, that really convicts me. Right? As I, I am a classic people pleaser. I can read the room and understand and know who you would like me to be. And then I simply play that role so that you like me. Now sometimes eye pleasers and, or people pleasers and eye catchers can look the, the, the way of what can you do to self-promote yourself so that at work you continue to advance, you continue to achieve, you continue to, to make the next step up and sometimes instead of just making yourself look good, you step on others and make others look worse. I'm growing in my security to be the person who God has made me to be, not to be the person you want me to be, to grow confident in, in who we are as sons and daughters of God, that my identity comes from him, that I am a son of God. I am chosen, I am holy, and I am beloved by God to be the person, the tag that he made me to be. And when you have confidence in that. There's no need to be a people pleaser. I'm growing in that. That's a growth area for me. And then employers. If you're somebody who, who employs others, or maybe you're not the employer, but maybe you oversee a division or a group of other people, masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly. It almost sounds like an HR person talking. Know that you also have a master in heaven. So even CEOs have master. That God is the, the source of all power, all authority. That even if you're at the top of the financial food chain, you still report to God. And so as you report to God, make that in, in your mind as you deal with those who work under you. Right, the standard that we should measure our, our new self-behavior is Jesus himself, the master who is seated, seated at the right hand of God who will come to judge the living and the dead. 
and just and fair. Just means right. You do the right thing. And fair is you, you, you give everybody what it is they need to succeed. Right? Or you treat your employees right and you give them what they need, the resources they need to be successful. And then when they are successful, you celebrate their successes and don't be threatened by their success. You grow and develop them to become their fullest potential. And we do all of this because, because Jesus, our ultimate master, the person that is the top of the food chain for the fourth commandment, the person that we are to honor above all, to obey above all, to submit all of our lives to. He is the one who pours out for us. I really encourage you today to think about where in your life do you need to experience some transformation? Where do you need to receive some, some of the Holy Spirit to lift up the deficiencies that we have as fallen human beings, moms and dads, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, workers and employers? More and more, we need to put on ourselves those, that identity of Christ and those virtues of Christ that we talked about last week. And those clothes then change the way that we impact with other people. Last week, I challenged you to, to take, take one or two of those virtues of Christ and practice them in your week. Today, I want you to be affirming and encouraging with those that you come around today. The agape love of God is the reason why we have the opportunity to have a sacrificial love for each other. That agape love of God that, that sent God to earth to suffer and to die so that we would never have to. That we could have life in his name. That we could live with one another expressing that love to each other. That incredible agape love. Luther said this, in his Heidelberg Disputation, he said, God's love does not look for that which is pleasing and love it, but he loves something and makes it pleasing. God's word said that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God looks at you and loves you, not because of how amazing you are, but because of how amazing he is in his mercy. He looks at you and loves you as you are right now. He's not saying, I want you to work off all the rough edges. And if you do a good enough job polishing that rock of a heart of yours, I might love you. No, he sees you damaged and broken, full of shame, full of guilt, full of hurt. And his heart is overwhelmed with compassion for you. He weeps with compassion for you because he loves you so much. And the beautiful thing about that is not just that God loves you all broken and messy, but it's that God's love starts to convert and transform your messy into a masterpiece. He loves you damaged and broken, and he loves you into healing. That's good news for me. I pray that that's good news for you too. Use that good news to lift up your own soul, to be able to serve and love your family, your coworkers with the sacrificial love of God.